Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to have you here and those of you watching online. Thank you for that. It's good to see all of you. We're in a series. In fact, we're closing the series this weekend called The Good Life. And we've been looking at the Beatitudes of Christ. And we're seeing some characteristics in the life of Jesus that should be, it should be a reality in all of our life. All of these Beatitudes are things that are within our reach. These are things that a child of God can actually achieve and accomplish. And uh, I encourage those of you who have been in this study with us to take those messages and apply them to your life and begin to uh, see how God will use these different attributes and qualities not only to impact your life, but impact those in uh, your circle of influence. In fact, everywhere Jesus went, he made a difference in the lives of other people. And in this first sermon, this, this great message that he would preach to his followers, he's giving us insight into his effectiveness. He's giving us insight into, um, uh, into these qualities that uh, can be seen in your life and mine if we're willing uh, to apply these principles. So look at with me in Matthew 5 as we prepare to close the series. Matthew 5, verse 1. The Bible says, seeing the multitudes, Jesus goes up into the mountain, when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now here's the first beatitude. We'll just kind of go through this as we prepare to close the series. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, out beside poor in spirit, you could put the word humble. What he's talking about there is a quality that should be in every Christ follower's life, and that is the quality of humility. It's interesting, again, that it's the very first thing he talks about when he's talking about something that his kids should be known for is their humility. Far too many times his kids are known for their pride and their arrogance instead of their humility. And I've told you there's nothing worse than to see a humble savior and a proud sinner. And so he's talking here about spiritual poverty of spirit, poor in spirit is humility. And then he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now again, it's more than just the loss of a loved one. Certainly there's comfort within that, uh, within that. But he's talking about mourning over a loss of relationship with our Heavenly Father, the loss of fellowship, meaning the habits in your life and mine that separate us from his presence. And he said we ought to go through life with a sense of humility, with an awareness that we all have this propensity and proclivity within us to sin and to stray. And he said it will keep your mind in the right place. It'll keep your spiritual equilibrium where it should be when you go through life with an awareness of the things in your life that can separate you from his fullness. And so he talks about mourning. And then he goes on to the third one, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Remember meekness is not weakness. Sometimes that's uh, just wrong in your understanding of it. It's not weakness at all. I've told you before, it used to be said of a horse when the horse was broken that they had meeked the animal. Well, it doesn't mean the horse is weak. It means the horse is under control. So when we speak of meekness in your life and mine, we mean we're under control. It means I can control my emotions. It means I can control my reactions. I can't keep everything that happens to me from happening to me, but I can respond to the things that happen to me. 
My dad used to say you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Uh, so meekness is controlled strength. And then the Bible says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We come into the world hungering and thirsting for something. Uh, there is the God-shaped void and vacuum in everyone's life. And he's saying, when you seek God with all that you are, he will satisfy the deepest need of your life. In fact, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things you hunger and thirst for will be added to you. And so there is the idea of seeking and thirsting for righteousness. And then, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He's talking about a principle, again, that should mark the life of every Christ follower. So many times I see this, and I know you have as well, when a person has walked with God for a period of time, we don't dispense mercy as much as we dispense judgment, as much as we dispense criticism of other people. And he's saying, look, we need to be a merciful people. We've all experienced the mercy of God, so we need to give that what you've received. When you've received mercy, you can give mercy. You see, you can't give what you don't have any more than you can come from where you've not been. But once you have received the mercy of God, you can give mercy. In the Bible, there is a locked-in law of likeness that you give what you need. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs 17, if you're going to have friends, if it's your goal to have a friend, he said, then you must, first of all, show yourself to be friendly. So if you want to have someone smile, then give them a smile. <laughs> if you want someone to be nice to you, be nice to them. Take the initiative is the point. The merciful receive mercy. And then he goes on to talk about the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They'll be in a special relationship with him. Pure in heart, the word pure is katharos. We talked about this. We get our word catheter from that. So basically what he's saying is blessed are those who have the ability to remove the toxicity, the poisons from their heart. Blessed are those who don't nurse grudges and blessed are, are those who don't harbor the hurts. Blessed are those who have the ability to let that go, to get that out of their system, the katharos of the heart that will keep the heart clean and keep it pure. Blessed are they, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. Talked about that last weekend. And the only way you can be a peacemaker is you first have to have the peace of God. Remember Isaiah 9, 6, when uh, the birth announcement of the coming of the Messiah was given. In Isaiah 9, 6, one of the things they said his name would be called is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And you remember the fifth one, Prince of Peace. So I contend this morning, when you know the Prince of Peace, you can receive peace and then you can conversely give peace. And so you have this peacemaker he's talking about. For theirs, he said, is the kingdom, uh, uh, I'm sorry, for they shall be called the sons of God. Then verse 10, blessed, now wait, notice he's going to pivot now. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Now it's interesting, up until this point, he's talked about these very positive attributes. He's talked about these very good things that will change your life and affect the lives of those around you. And then he concludes the Beatitudes with this warning. He says, look, when you go about trying to be a merciful person, and you go about trying to be a peacemaker, when you go about your life, living your life under control as best that you can, when you go about your life hungering and thirst for righteousness, don't be shocked, don't be surprised when you encounter persecution. Now, the word persecution is interesting. It means to be pursued. It means to be lied about. It means to be gossiped about. 
It means to have your character assassinated. It means to be slandered. It means when you have, uh, uh, you've checked the boxes and you've said, there's no reason this should be happening to me. There, this doesn't make any sense. I've done everything that I've tried to do. I've, I've tried to treat my family well. I've tried to do well in business. I've tried to treat my friends and even my neighbors and people I don't know. I try to be fair. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you can do all the above and you can have all the attributes. You can have all these attitudes, the beatitudes, vibrant in your life, but it still won't keep you from experiencing persecution. Now, this is what gives a lot of people heartburn because some people have erroneously thought that once you're connected to your creator and once you're walking with God and once you're understanding your purpose, that you, know, you, you, you don't have these kinds of things. Now, I know we make mistakes, and, 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 and we go through things that we bring on ourselves. And he, he, by the way, he didn't say, blessed are the punished, because <laughs> that's not the big dilemma. I understand when I bring stuff on myself, don't you? That, it, it's frustrating. But I, I know when I do something dumb and something bad happens as a result of something dumb I've done or said, I do that all the time. And that's frustrating, isn't it, when you don't have anybody to blame but yourself? You just look at the man in the mirror <laughs> and say, it's me. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying blessed are the punished. He's saying blessed are the persecuted. And these are persecuted, note now, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word righteousness, righteousness just means right living. It means doing right, saying the right thing, doing the right thing, having the right response. Uh, it, it, it means to live distinctively and differently than the, you're not going with the flow. You're really trying to live a good life. You're really trying to be kind to other people. He's saying here that you can do all of that again and still have persecution. Then he goes on to say, not only that, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He's saying sometimes you can represent me and you can be living out a Christian life and you can be living out the values of your faith and have all kinds of negative things said about you. And notice the response in verse 12. Boy, this is not natural. This is supernatural. Rejoice <laughs> and be exceedingly glad. Now, how many of you respond that way? I'll be honest with you. That's hard for me to respond that way. Uh, that, I mean, if somebody is slandering me or somebody is saying bad things about me and somebody is saying things about me that I know are not true, it, it's hard not to want to respond or retaliate. It, it's hard because that's just natural. Our, our natural instinct is self-preservation. It's just your natural instinct. It, it, it's something God just built within us to protect ourselves. I get that. It, it's rare that you can be slandered, pursued, um, uh, criticized, uh, uh, maligned, um, somebody is really has it in for you and they're trying to hurt you, your reputation, your, it, it's, it's, it's hard to rejoice and be exceedingly glad is what I'm driving at. That's hard to do. It, it's it's kind of like what James was talking about in James 1 uh, during the, the diaspora when the church was being persecuted and the church was being scattered throughout all that then known world because of Rome's persecution. They were trying to kill the influence of Christ by killing the Christians and, and killing the church. And so all that happened is the church scattered. And so James was writing to the church scattered in James 1, and he says, brothers and sisters, now get this wording, it sounds just what Jesus just taught. He said, count it all joy when you go into different trials and tribulations. 
Count it joy, not when you're coming out, but when you're going in. Count it joy when uh, you, you hear some negative things said about you. Count it joy when you, uh, you, you're experiencing some things that are negative happening in your life that you didn't bring on yourself. Now, he said, count, count it joy for, here's why, great is your reward in heaven. So one thing, he said, I'm going to take care of you. I got you. I got this. I got that. I'm going to take care of you. And not only that, they persecuted the prophets who walked before you. He said, you're in pretty good company. <laughs> in fact, I found in my life, if I'm not running into the devil, it might be a sign I'm running with him. Sometimes the most affirming reality that you face in life is headwinds and opposition. I love what Paul Harvey said one time. He said, you know you're on the road to success when it's uphill all the way. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, listen, you, you, you pose a threat to the enemy. And when your life is posing a threat to what he is all about, then he's going to try to do everything within his power to stop you. So the first thing I would point out to you this morning is, look, in reality, there is first a persecution we can expect. We can just expect it. Headwinds are going to come, hard times are going to come, difficulty is going to come, opposition is going to come from things sometimes, from people sometimes, and Jesus warned us of that. The Beatitudes, this beautiful sermon that he's preaching, he's saying, look, as you live these things out, you're going to face some persecution. In fact, look at the life of Jesus. The Bible describes Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, as going about everywhere, listen to this, doing good doing good. Everything about Jesus was good. In fact, when his apostles who knew him best and worked closest with him, when the apostles walked with him, you know what they said about Jesus? They said, he does all things well. That couldn't be said about any of us. We could say we do some things well, but not all things well. Nobody's really good at everything. You know, I'm not consistently good at anything. And I'm just suggesting you that could only be said of Jesus. And my point with that is he doing good he does all things well, still had trouble everywhere he went. People lied about him, gossiped on him. Even one of the 12 betrayed him. One of the guys he poured his, so much time and effort and money and resources in and brought him right in close, betrayed him. So I'm saying if that could happen to the Son of God, don't be shocked when it happens to you or me. Listen to what Jesus said, John 15, 20. Servant's not better than his master. <laughs> if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They came after me, they're going to come after you. Now, why was the enemy after Jesus? Well, the secret, in my estimation, is 1 John 3, 8. The Bible said, Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus said, I came to tear down everything he's about. What is the devil about? John 10, 10. Kill, steal, destroy. Take away your joy, take away your effectiveness, take away your influence, steal, kill, destroy. And Jesus said, I came to take down the works of the enemy. He's a threat. And because the enemy knows Jesus is a threat, he sought to persecute him every day of his life all the way to the cross. So don't be surprised, child of God. You who represent Jesus here on the earth, we're the body of Christ, right? We're his hands on the earth, we're his feet on the earth, we're his body on the earth. So if he persecuted Jesus because Jesus represented a threat to the enemy, don't think that he's not going to come after us. 
I mean, the, the devil has a target on every back of every person who's trying to live a good life, to have a good family, to have a successful career, to be effective in their faith, to make a difference in someone else's life, to share their faith. I mean, he, you got a target on your back. And Jesus told us it would be so. So I'm saying to be forearmed, or, or to be uh, forewarned is to be forearmed. And so listen to another verse, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. Get the certainty of that. You say, you might, bad things. You know, he said, it's going to happen. Uh, he said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, listen, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus, not all, not, not all will, but all who will, will suffer persecution. That's why you say, I mean, I've talked to people before, man, I got church. I started reading my Bible. I started praying. I mean, I, I, started, I started being generous with my giving at the church and with other people. I mean, I, I just, my whole life changed. And it seems like ever since all that's happened, I've had nothing but problems hit my world. And I'm very sympathetic to that. And I, and I hate that. And I know there's a lot of people, probably I'm talking to a lot of you that have experienced that, but I'm just trying to help you connect dots because really the theme of my message is, learning how to stand when you don't understand. And it's because you now, you now uh, are, are a threat to the enemy. You're a threat to what he's about. So absolutely, absolutely he's going to try to take you down and try to take you out. You, you see, the devil doesn't care if it's a legitimate reason or an illegitimate reason, if it's reality or perception that knocks us off course and takes us out as long as he gets us out. I mean, I hear stories all the time. I tell you all the time, if you've never been hurt in church, you just didn't go long enough. <laughs> We've all got stories. And I could sit down with a cup of coffee alongside of you and I'll share my story, you share yours, and we'll cry and we'll just hug, out, hug it out. But I can tell you at the end of the day, everybody in the room and everybody watching on, on the human side could justify never going to another church again based on some of our experiences and nobody would blame us. Really. And the, the reality of it is the devil doesn't care if you've got a legitimate reason to disengage or just a perception. You know, just a, you had a feeling. Uh, you got bad information. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if it's true or false. If the res, listen, if the result is you're off the field, you're on the bench, or you're off the bench and you're back in the grandstand, it doesn't care. He wants to run the clock out on your life to keep your life from making a difference in anyone else's life. And sadly, there's going to be a lot of Christians who will stand before God, listen, with nothing to show for the life they live. If you doubt me, read 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 is the rewards of the Christian in heaven one day. It's not to see if we stay or go. That was handled at the cross. This is to see what rewards we, have, we will receive for the life that we live. And sadly, the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 3 that there will be many people there who won't have anything to show, no rewards. In fact, he describes it in the King James this way. He says, they're there yet so as by fire. Just got there, saved and singed, <laughs> just in the door. Nothing to show. And I'm saying, that's the work of the enemy. He knocks you out. He keeps you from being effective. And Jesus knew that. He knew these guys were going to face it. He knew you and I were going to face it. So he's putting the cards on the table. He's saying, I want to be honest with you. I want to tell you so when it happens to you, you don't feel like this was bait and switch. You know that you pose a threat, so the enemy is trying to hurt you. That's what it's about. 
In fact, man, when you study the first century Christians, they were accused of cannibalism. They took the teaching of Jesus in John 9, or 6 rather, when he says, you have to consume my body and drink my blood. They took that literally. In fact, they lied about it, which is persecution. They slandered and gossiped about it, and they said Christians are cults. It's a cult. And they drink blood and eat. I mean, it was just crazy some of the stuff they said. Not only that, they said they were immoral, that these little church gatherings that they do are just nothing more than these hookup things, and there's just a lot of immorality going on within the church. Uh, in Jude 12, it talks about love feast, which you and I today call that fellowship, <laughs> potluck, if you grew up in that type of church, where you watch who carries it in before you try to sample it. You ever do that? No, okay, never mind. We didn't do that much. But the point is... Uh, the point is they would have these fellowships and they'd just love on each other and how are you doing? And the point of the whole thing was just, well, they were called love feasts. Well, the enemy took that and interpreted that and perverted that into something it never was. Why? To discourage people, to slander them, to lie about them. So they accused them of immorality. They accused them of cannibalism. They accused them of treason against the state. They said they're talking about overthrowing them. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. By the way, uh, that was the very basis upon which Jesus was crucified, is the fact, not that he claimed to be God, and he was God. That's when the Jews first brought him before Pilate, and they said, he says he's God, it's blasphemy, he should be stoned to death. Pilate said, I don't care if he claims to be God, doesn't mean anything to me. Pilate was a polytheist, he believed in many gods, he said, maybe he is a God, I'll light a candle under his picture, hedge my bet. Pilate didn't bother him, he, I'm gonna put him to death because he says he's God. But then they thought about it and they said, came back and said, oh, wait a minute, Pilate. He says he's the king. Remember when the wise men came in Matthew 2? Where is he who is born king? They didn't say born to be king. He was king in his birth. And Pilate confronts Jesus and basically says, look, you can be a god. I'm not going to pick with you over being a god, but you can't say you're a king. Caesar is Lord. And no one or nothing can be above Caesar. And no one, no citizen of, of the Roman Empire can swear to an allegiance higher than Caesar, or it's treason. And Jesus was put to death, and on the cross it said, here's Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So he put him to death over treason. So Christians were naturally thought to be treasonous because they believed Jesus should be the Lord of their life. <laughs> now, yeah, they respected Caesar. Jesus himself took the coin from the fish's mouth and said, what's the inscription? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Paul taught in Romans that God established government. And so God put structure in the earth. So it's not being treasonous to say, my loyalty is to my heavenly father. You can be a good Christian and a good citizen. They don't contradict one another. But that wasn't the common thought in that day. And so people were criticized and maligned and slandered because of these things that were said about them that were wrong. And Jesus said, your persecution will come. So you can expect it. Here's the second thought. There is a perfection, though, you can experience. A perfection you can experience. Now understand, when I use the word perfection, I don't mean it in the sense of being sinlessly perfect. I use it in the sense that the Bible uses it, which means a maturity, a growth. You can grow, I guess is what I'm driving at, in the midst of persecution. I've said you don't know how strong you are till you're tested. 
You don't know how strong your faith is, so let's test it. Anybody can walk with God when every prayer you've prayed gets answered the way you pray it would. Anybody will walk with God when you get along great in the family, there's never any problems, and the job's going good, and there's always money. I mean, any, that doesn't really take a lot of faith, honestly. But man, all of a sudden, when life takes that turn, and there's more, more month than money, and the debate with the mate is just constant, and, and the kids are, are just running you crazy, and, and you don't know where your life is going, and you've checked the boxes, and you're working as hard as you know to work, and you're doing everything the right way, and all of that is going south. Sometimes God will use those hard experiences to, to deepen your faith. It's like the tree, when the storms hit, that root system is getting more and more established. The stronger the storms, the deeper the roots. And if God would create that and place that in nature, how much more would he create that and place that within us? So sometimes he'll send the dark experiences. You don't know how bright your light can shine till it's in the dark. And in this experience of persecution, he is perfecting his kids. Listen to 1 Peter 5.10. May the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, listen, after you have suffered a while, may he perfect you. There's our word. May he establish and strengthen and settle you. When? After you've suffered a while. God said, I'm going to let this persecution hit your life. I'm going to allow it to happen because you're going to be a better person and you're going to be stronger and you're going to be able to help somebody else coming behind you. Who better to help someone with a broken relationship than someone who's had that? Who better to counsel someone when they've lost a loved one than someone who's been there? Who better to help someone in a big career change in life and navigating a whole new chapter of life than somebody who's been there, done that? I'm saying God will use all of the experiences that you and I go through in life, the positive and the negative, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, he'll use those things to grow us. If I could challenge you when you're in the middle of this and you're trying to figure out what God's trying to teach you, let me challenge you when the persecution hits, first stay above it. Don't get pulled down into it. Stay above it. It might be a something, it might be a someone. Here's the knee jerk, because I said our our natural reaction is to protect ourselves. Have you ever made the statement, I'm going to get even with him? You know what happens when somebody's shooting at you? You're here and they're shooting at you. When you get even with them, here's what that looks like. You've gotten even with them. You've basically come to their level. You've stepped down to get where they are, and now you're on the same level with the person you've just gotten. That's what it means to get even. You don't want to get even. You want to stay above it. So when the persecution hits you, don't, you, you got to fight the tendency to be drawn into that vortex. If you know you've done nothing wrong, you know that what you've said is true, you know you've done the right thing, then stand on that. Here's a life principle that God teaches me over and over again, and that is this, never doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. When you had peace about the decision and you knew it was the right thing and you knew it was the right way to handle it and you're clear, once you've made that call and all of a sudden it gets dark and it gets stormy, don't now doubt in the storm what God told you in the calm. He's faithful. He's not confused. God didn't go, oops, sorry, my bad. No, if you were clear there, you need to stay clear. So don't stay above it. 
The other thing I'd tell you is learn to rejoice in it. Remember he said rejoice and be exceeding glad. So in the midst of this, rejoice in it. What does that look like? I've learned that you don't necessarily rejoice because the times are good. You rejoice because he's good. See the difference? You can have the worst day in the world and be grateful and be thankful because you're grateful and thankful, not necessarily for the day, but you're thankful for the God. You're thankful for the, for the saving power of Jesus. You're thankful for the presence of the Holy Spirit. You and I always have something to be thankful for. So stay above it, rejoice in it. And I'm telling you, the third thing to do is love through it. Love through it. Don't allow these experiences. Remember, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't, don't allow what's going on out here, the troubled life, create a troubled heart. Keep it out of there. Remember Catharos. Keep that out of there. Keep that out of the heart. And here's the third thing. We'll close. Third thing is simply this. There is a perspective we can express. Somebody's going to see our perspective in the midst of persecution. They're going to see the difference that it makes. They're going to see you rejoicing and being exceedingly glad. They're going to see the difference that you make when you're going through the hardest times, and it's going to make a difference in somebody's life. I don't care who you are, you influence somebody. Somebody looks looking up to you. Maybe a child, grandchild, spouse, a friend, a neighbor. Somebody's looking up. Somebody's looking at you. You influence someone. The word influence is an interesting word. We get it from the idea of inflow. Inflow. Influence is inflow. Meaning there's two there's streams that are flowing into a river, creating a current that's moving things down the, the street. Your life creates a current. There's somebody that is caught in the current of your inflow, your influence, your life. And people will learn more about you with how you handle persecution and adversity than they will learn about you as, as to how you handle success. So the pressure is on when the persecution comes and you never know who's watching how we're handling this. Let me give you this illustration. Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen. Stephen was a follower, a committed follower of Jesus, the first deacon, the first really solid uh, official in the church, Stephen, and he was also the first martyr of the New Testament, Christian church. And the martyrdom of Stephen comes at the end of Acts, and it is overseen. The, 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 the person who is giving a consent to his death is Saul of Tarsus who will later become the Apostle Paul, who will later write more than half the New Testament. But when you read about him in Acts 7, he's a persecutor. Stephen is being persecuted. And Saul is there. See, Saul was the Roman official. Remember, the Jews didn't have the authority to put anyone to death. But the Bible says Saul consented to the death of Stephen. In other words, he gave them permission to kill him. And they killed him in the Old Testament fashion of stoning, uh, in their estimation, blasphemous people, false prophets, because he believed Jesus had died and rose again and ascended, and he was the Lord and the Savior of the earth, and he was telling people about that. So they were going to kill him. And Saul signs his death warrant. Saul didn't pick up a rock, but he held the coats of those who did. He consented to his death. And one of the things that happened that I think shaped Saul's perspective was when Stephen was dying. And the last thing Stephen says before he died was this, I see Jesus standing at the father's right hand and he dies. And it's an incredible thought because time and time again in the Bible, when you read about Jesus, it says he's seated, seated 
at the right hand of the majesty on high, seated. He's setting. But in this moment when Stephen is dying, Stephen sees him not as seating at the, setting at the right hand of the Father, but he sees him standing. And we understand that tradition. When someone of honor walks into the room, we stand. When the flag is unfurled, we stand. Standing gives honor and it gives tribute and respect. And Jesus is seeing one of his kids and he's seeing the way they died. They're dying because of the Lord he loved and he's dying because of the life that he lived. He's dying because he was persecuted for his faith. And Jesus stands to welcome him home. And I think that image and those words never got out of Saul's mind. Because in two chapters later, the voice from heaven hits Saul on the road to Damascus. And Jesus said to Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul is gloriously converted on the road to Damascus and becomes Paul. What's my point? My point is that perspective that Saul had, in my estimation, was influenced by the persecution of Stephen. You never know who you're influencing. You never know who may be watching you in your darkest moment and seeing how you handle it and seeing the way your faith is lived out in the midst of it. And you never know the difference that that will make. What I've talked about this morning is, is heavy, and I know it is, and it's hard, and I know it is. It's something that I struggle with, to be real honest with you. Because no one likes to go through hard times. No one likes to go through difficult times. But we all know it's just an inevitable, inescapable reality of our life. It's just going to happen. And if I could close and just give you any kind of counsel, I would tell you the best place to be when you're going through the hardest time is as close to your heavenly father as you can get. Just press into him. You might even stumble and fall in the season of life. That's okay. I found that you can fall on the rock, but you can't fall off of it. The safest place to be is close to your heavenly father. When the hounds of hell assail you and the pressures of the enemy are on you, you just keep pressing into your heavenly father. Let me give you this little illustration. I thought about it this morning. Um, my mom and dad didn't read Dr. Spock. They kind of, they, they would discipline us kids with a, you know, a spanking, right? Can I say that with a spanking? They didn't abuse us, but that was that style. I don't know how many of you grew up in a home like that. My dad would use a belt occasionally. My mom would even use a switch. That's a real thing, kids. Google that. Um, <laughs> And they didn't abuse us, but they did spank us. And being the middle child, I, I probably caught, how many of you middle children out there, you understand? That, yeah, God bless us, middle children. My sister, you know, the firstborn, they kind of trying to figure things out on her, and then they overcorrect on the next one. And then by the time my little brother got here, they just melted in. The baby, right? So I'm saying, though, I probably got uh, spankings more than the other two. I'm sure well-deserved. But here, here's where I'm going with this illustration. One of the safe places I could be is at my grandparents' house because my grandmother would not let her daughter spank any of her grandchildren. Any grandparents can relate to that. So grandmother was base for me. She was base. She was my safe place. And I remember we were at their farm in Oklahoma, and I don't know, something was said perhaps that upset my mother. I was one of those kids. Or were you one of those kids that you could get your mother right here on the edge and your siblings would look at you like, just shut up now, stop. And, and yet you, you couldn't. There was something wrong with you that you, you had to, 
you, you just, you thought other things, you know, just, I, and, I, and if you think it, you, got, you just got to say it. You got to say it. And I'd get my mother like right there. And my sister would be going, Billy, just shut up, shut, walk away, walk away. And for some, I don't know, something's wrong. I would just give her one more little push, <laughs> right? And now she's just, she's just upset. And we were out, I was in the, I never will forget, it was in the front yard of the house. And my mother says, Billy Lloyd, you know, when they call you by your full name, you're no. So she breaks, it's bad, man. And she breaks off this little switch off of the tree. And I had this moment where the house is here, the front door is there, my mother's here, and I'm here going, I think I can beat her to the door. <laughs> and the reason I'm gonna run, because my grandma is in the kitchen. And I remember, it was like, boy, that moment, and we we're both running to the door, and I get to the door ahead of my mother, I run to my grandmother, and I just grab my grandmother, she wraps me up, she has an apron on, and she just wraps that apron around me, and she looks at my mother right behind me, and she's coming at me like Zorro, you know, with that switch. <laughs> and my grandmother says, you leave that baby alone. I looked over at my mother and went, you heard that, right? <laughs> First of all, I'm her baby. Second of all, you're leaving me alone. My mother was looking at me like, you're gonna have to let that old lady go at some point in life, son, and I'm still gonna be here. I'm hugging my, I'm walking around with my grandmother, man. We're doing the, we're doing the thing till mama cools down a little bit. What's my point? My point was the safest place I knew as a kid to be was with my grandmother. Not that my mom was gonna do bad stuff. I hope you don't miss that point and let her know that. She's gonna say, clean up your illustration, Bill. I heard that. But the point is, uh, when you are being pressured and you're being pressed and the hard times are coming, just, I just want you to press into your heavenly father and you'll find protection there. You'll find everything you need there. He said, if you'll come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you some rest. So that's what I challenge you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this weekend where we could be here, experience worship, spend some time in your word and be able to see one another and have fellowship with each other. Lord, I, I pray you'll bless the time we've been together. And Lord, we're about to go back out into the real world now, break out of this big old holy huddle. I pray, Father, that we'll be able to live out these principles. I don't know everything, everyone who's watching or those in the room, I don't know what they're going through, but you do. You know the heartaches and you know the disappointments and you know the difficulties and you know the challenges. So Father, I pray that all of us will turn to you. We'll run to you and feel your embrace your provision, and your protection. And Lord, if there's anybody watching or anyone in the room who's never trusted you as their Savior, I pray this will be the moment where they humble their heart, swallow their pride, and say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin, give me strength, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.